Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Today we talk about carnism. What's that, you ask? It's the belief system that enables us to eat some animals and not others. We visit with Melanie Joy, Ph.D., the author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. She and I spoke the end of November and begin when I asked her to describe carnism. for me to explain what carnism is, is to use an example. Um, so if you can imagine that you're a guest at a fancy dinner party and you're sitting down to dinner at a beautiful table and you're eating a, a delicious beef stew and you ask the host for her recipe and she replies that the secret is in the meat and that you need to start with three pounds of well-marinated golden retriever. Your reaction, um, which the re reaction you probably had, is an example of carnism. Um, you know, chances are what you had seen moments before as food, you now see as a dead animal. What you had perceived as delicious, you now perceive as disgusting. Carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. Um, it's essentially the opposite of veganism or vegetarianism. We tend to label only those belief systems or ideologies that fall outside the mainstream. So we tend to think of eating meat or eating animals as a given rather than a choice and not recognize um, that when we are eating animals, we are in fact acting in accordance with this invisible belief system that I call carnism. When something falls outside the mainstream, we label it. When it's within the mainstream, we don't label it. Why? Well, this is often the case, and there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, you know, one is that carnism is a dominant ideology, which means that it is a mainstream ideology. It's embraced and maintained by all of the major social institutions from the family to the state. Um, but another reason is because carnism is a particular type of ideology. It's what I refer to as a violent ideology in that it's literally organized around violence, intensive and extensive violence. Violence. Meat cannot be procured without killing. And dominant violent ideologies need to use a set of um, social and psychological defense mechanisms to protect themselves, to enable humane people to participate in inhumane practices without even realizing what they're doing. Um, most people have a value system that does not condone the intensive, extensive, and unnecessary suffering of billions of sentient beings. Most people care about animals and, and do not want to think of them suffering and certainly don't want to think of themselves participating in such suffering. And yet most people also eat animals often multiple times a day. And Carnism needs to block our awareness and, and shut down our empathy when we sit down to a plate of meat so that we can feel comfortable enough to consume what was once a living being. And the primary defense of the system is invisibility. And the primary way the system remains invisible is by remaining unnamed. If we don't name it, we can't talk about it. And if we can't talk about it, we can't question it and we can't challenge it. So it's not just what we eat that remains invisible. It's how the uh, meat gets to our tables. Exactly. Carnism um, it keeps the victims, the direct victims, the animals, you know, out of sight and conveniently out of public consciousness. 
It also keeps the indirect victims um, out of sight. The indirect victims are slaughterhouse workers and meatpackers and human food consumers who are participating in something that they might choose not to participate in if they had the awareness that would enable them to make their choices freely. Um, you know, without awareness, there is no free choice. So um, carnism keeps itself invisible on a physical level, on a practical level, and it keeps itself invisible on a, on a symbolic level by not being named. So one of the reasons I wrote my book was because I, I really do believe that um, people need and deserve to know the truth, and not just the truth about meat production and consumption, but the truth about carnism, the system that enables it in the first place, the truth about this invisible system that has shaped our preferences and our choices and our beliefs and our feelings and our behaviors and guided us like an invisible hand. Um, and I do believe that with awareness, people are more likely to make uh, the kinds of choices that are in their own best interests, as well as the best interests of other animals and the environment. Before we get to making those choices, let's talk about the forces behind keeping it invisible. How would you characterize them? Well, I refer to them as defense mechanisms, um, and there are a set of defense mechanisms that are common to many violent ideologies. Um, and one, I mentioned invisibility, which is the primary defense of the system, but um, another set of defenses is what I refer to as the three ends of justification. Eating meat is normal, natural, and necessary. And these three ends have been used to justify virtually all violent ideologies throughout the history of humankind, from slavery to male dominance. And these justifications are, um, they're myths, um, and they're taught to us from, you know, the moment that we're weaned, the moment we start eating solid food, we, we learn to eat animals and not question what we're doing, not recognize that we're even making a choice. And then when we do, if we do start to, to ask those questions, um, and then we're taught why we're justified in continuing these behaviors. Would you go on to say that there are... Uh a significant economic interest behind that? Well, the U.S. animal agribusiness industry is a $25 billion a year industry. So absolutely. And it's largely subsidized, or it's subsidized, I should say, by large um, amounts of taxpayers' money. In your book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism, you make reference to uh, a tangle that Oprah Winfrey had. Oprah Winfrey, during the height of the mad cow scare, um, made a comment to the effect that she would avoid eating certain types of meat. And um, she um, was... she. She claims this on the air. And under the food libel laws, this is legislation that predated the Winfrey case, and it's been backed by agricultural corporations. Under these laws, it's illegal to criticize certain foods without producing, quote, reasonable scientific evidence. So, um, you know, we have to be very careful about, um, about what we say and how we say it. And I think I use this case in my book as an example of the power of the animal agribusiness industry and of the defensiveness as well of this industry. As an attorney, that certainly seems to me that there are significant First Amendment issues there because a person could merely be uh, articulating her desires or her personal wishes as opposed to uh, disparaging something. You discuss the fact that 
whoever defines the issue controls the debate. You're defining the issue of carnism in your book. What are you attempting to do in um, controlling the debate? Well, that's a great question. Um, When I talk about whoever defines the issue controls the debate, I'm talking about the power of words to affect public consciousness, to impact the way that we think about and therefore relate to certain issues. And in this case, obviously, I'm talking about eating animals. And um, what I was referring to in my book was um, people within the animal agribusiness industry choosing to use terms that would increase the distance meat consumers felt between uh, between the meat on their plate and the animal it once was. No, so as, as an example, um, we use the term beef rather than cow when we're, um, you know, re- referring to meat. Um, it seems that the lower down on the, you know, so-called hierarchy of animals, the more comfortable people are using the actual name. So we might say chicken and we might say fish, um, but we don't say cow. And um, meat producers were suggesting that we say um, chevron instead of uh, goat meat. So I'm trying to redefine the issue. I'm trying to point out the fact that there is an issue, I think, in the first place. Carnism really distorts our perceptions of animals and the meat that we eat so that we can feel comfortable enough to consume them. And my hope is by accurately naming the issue, we can help people recognize that there is, in fact, this issue and help them to um, free their minds from a system that's that's, um, conditioned them to think and relate to animals and meat in a particular way. So you talk about the internal linguistic process that we each have, and you characterize it as a schema, uh, the way we think. Can you tie that in to your goal here? Absolutely. The schema, I refer to the carnistic schema. An easier way to understand this is it's a mentality, the carnistic mentality. It's the psychological dimension of the broader system that is carnism. When we are born into a dominant institutionalized system like carnism, we inevitably absorb the system's logic as our own. In other words, we learn to see the world through the lens of carnism, and carnism teaches us to think and feel in certain ways that distort our perceptions of animals and the meat that we eat so that we can feel comfortable enough to consume them. Um, An example is that we learn to objectify the animals that we eat. For instance, you know, we refer to the chicken on our plate as something rather than someone. We learn to think of the animals that are to become our meat as um, abstractions, as lacking in any individuality, lacking in any individual character. For instance, you know, a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. So we lump them into this group about which we can make generalized stereotypical assumptions. Like other victims of violent ideologies, we give them numbers rather than names. Um, For my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating meat, I interviewed butchers and meat cutters, vegans, vegetarians, and meat eaters. And um, one of the people I was talking to, a a meat cutter, told me um, that if he, he believes that pigs have personalities, that they have feelings, that they have individuality, but he can't allow himself to think of them that way because, according to him, he wouldn't be able to do his job if he did. And carnism also teaches us to place animals in rigid categories in our minds, to compartmentalize or dichotomize. 
um, so that we can harbor very different attitudes and behaviors toward different animal species. We love dogs and we eat pigs, for example. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Melanie Joy, the author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Melanie, the way the mind is structured by not having uh, the word carnism available or frequently used in our North American English vocabulary makes me wonder the extent of other deficits that are created in our vocabulary and our ability to think. Because as you said, obviously, if we don't have a word for it, we can't talk about it. Does this extend to other issues? It absolutely does. And one of the goals of my book has been not simply to raise awareness about carnism, but to help people think differently about the way they think in the first place, to help people examine their assumptions, examine the systems that we're born into, and and question, question authority, question what we've been taught, um, so that that we can make our choices freely and and think more for ourselves. So um, that is um, very much one of the goals of my book. Um, The mentality that enables us to, um, you know, turn animals into units of production is not terribly different than the mentality that has enabled us to turn humans into objects in our minds as well um, and carry out violence toward, you know, both of these different groups. So I think it's really important for us to recognize this mentality and, and recognize the common threads that are woven through different types of dominant exploitive ideologies so that we can work to undo these and and create a more humane and just society for for all animals, humans included. Well, let's go back to carnism and uh, refer to your quote of Paul McCartney. Uh, If slaughterhouses had glass doors, the question that I ask you is, what would we see? Well, The vast majority of meat that makes it to the average meat consumer's plate um, is invariably a product of misery. It comes from someone who was born into captivity, um, into intensive confinement, which is where animals are raised and killed in these factory farms or CAFOs as they're referred to. Um, someone who is born into intensive confinement, someone who may well have never seen the light of day, someone who had a life that mattered to them um, and that was taken from them, and someone who quite likely suffered um, extremely in the process of being raised and slaughtered for their body and the body products. Um, Many animals, for example, are supposed to be stunned before being shackled um, and dragged along the disassembly line where they're then bled. The disassembly line is a um, perhaps a, a characterization uh, or a word used by the industry. Uh, that's a, a great question. It's a word that I've seen used in a variety of places, and I don't know the origins of this word. Um, it's like an assembly line, obviously, but where you're disassembling um, rather than assembling somebody. So um, that's, that's a good point. Um, so these animals, are, they're supposed to be stunned, but, but people who work in slaughterhouses and meat packing plants, I mean, they have to kill 
thousands and thousands of animals every day. And it's impossible with the relentless pace of the line to do your job effectively. So many of these animals are um, shackled upside down while they're still conscious. Um, they may be bled while they're still conscious. And if they survive bleeding, um, there was an investigation into a hog plant that, that found that pigs who were um, shackled and bled were still alive and, and dumped into boiling water while alive. So the animal products that make it to our plates are invariably products of misery. And you make reference to, um, in a uh, chicken-killing plant, the people who do that work kill 23 chickens per minute. That's right. The, the pace of the line, and, and this has been, um, you know, one of the reasons that, that human rights organizations have actually been challenging animal agribusiness practices. Um, it's because the pace of the line is, is relentless, and it not only harms, obviously, the animals, but, but also the people who work in these plants. It's a highly um, dangerous, meat packing is a highly dangerous job. For the first time ever, Human Rights Watch issued a statement um, criticizing an a single industry, the meat industry, for working conditions so dangerous, so egregious, that they violate basic human rights. And this was in 2005. You talk about um, beyond carnism and witnessing. Can you um, elaborate on that? Sure. Um, I talk about bearing witness. And bearing witness, the best way that I can describe it, is being willing to see the truth with our eyes as well as with our hearts. When we bear witness to another, you know, we, we truly empathize with them. We try to see the world through their eyes. We close that gap in our consciousness, that disconnect that allows us to eat someone and think that we're eating something. Bearing witness is fundamental to our own psychological and emotional well-being as it helps us to become more integrated in our values and our practices. And integration, not surprisingly, shares the same root with integrity, which by definition is the integration of our values and our practices. It helps us to become more mindful and more conscious um, in our choices and in our behaviors. And Bearing witness on a collective level is essential for transforming carnism. If you think about it, you know, virtually every atrocity that's been committed throughout the history of humankind was made possible because the populace turned away from a reality that they felt was too painful to face. And virtually every revolution, every social transformation was made possible because a group of people chose to bear witness and they demanded that others bear witness as well. The whole system of carnism is organized to block witnessing on a collective level and on an individual level. And we all pay the price for this system. The animals obviously do. The environment does, as, as animal agriculture is um, the leading cause of some of the most serious problems facing the environment today. And we do, because in order to eat other animals, we have to shut down our empathy and block our awareness. And empathy and awareness are, are integral to our sense of self. So, so bearing witness is really a transformative process, both personally and collectively, for those of us, you know, humans, as well as for the non-human beings. You're raising issues that um, may have caused some listeners to this edition of Radio Curious to turn off their radio. Um, how do you get beyond that? Well, I, you know, people will... Um, it's, it's very difficult to take in the reality of what happens to the animals that become our meat. 
And, you know, most of us, and I grew up eating meat, and I completely understand this, and it's really what motivated me to do the work that I'm doing today. You know, most of us want to turn away and uh, because it's simply too painful. I've been speaking and teaching about meat production for two decades now, and I have never once encountered a single person who doesn't cringe when faced with images of animal suffering. And people really do care. Um, and it is that caring that people have that, that make them want to turn away. But it's also the caring that compels them to bear witness. And so reaching out to people, I think it's really important to raise awareness not simply about meat production, but about carnism so that people can not feel like they're bad people for eating meat, but recognize that they are also victims of this system that is carnism. Melanie, on Friday, December 3rd, 2010, you opened a website, carnism.com. What's behind that website? What's the purpose? We launched Carnism Awareness and Action Network, and the mission of CAN is to expose and transform carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. So CAN empowers vegetarian and vegan advocates as well as concerned citizens through education and activism. It sounds like your work is um, also a personal passion. Absolutely. I am an advocate and as well as an academic, but my writing is for a, a wide audience and my speaking is for a wide audience. And it, it very much reflects my own personal passion. I feel very strongly about um, a number of issues and really want to work to help make this world a better place. Um, my focus is on helping make this world a better place for non-human animals, but, but also for human animals because we're all um, participants for better or worse, and victims, for better or worse, in this system of carnism. I want to ask a little bit about the term carnism. If you're aware of other aspects of human behavior that uh, is so much a part of human behavior that it also is not in the vocabulary. That is a great question. You know, carnism, like other um, isms, such as sexism, ageism, and racism, it reflects a particular way of thinking about and relating to ourselves, others, and the world. These other isms, even though they already have a name, also influence us tremendously, and we often end up supporting them without even realizing it. We could apply the concept of carnism, ageism, sexism to, you know, really any sort of set of assumptions or behaviors that reflect a social consciousness and a particular mentality that enable people to participate in practices that they would likely choose not to participate in if they were aware of what they were doing. We can look at the environmental um, issue and probably apply much of what we're talking about today to that issue as well. One of the things that is um, important about naming carnism is that it helps people to start to think about what they haven't been aware of, to start to recognize that there is something out there that is invisible, that is having a profound impact on their attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, their values and preferences, and you know some of the core choices they make in their everyday lives. And... Um, and that's why people should bother. And I think most people, when they become aware that they're profoundly influenced by an invisible system, really do want to learn about that system so that they can make choices that reflect what they truly think and feel rather than what they've been taught to think and feel. It makes me think of automobilism. Oh, 
what what ism? Automobilism. Uh, I call it the 90% rule. I call it that because if you look around at uh, how many cars have one person in them, nine out of 10 have one car, which makes me think that people uh, believe and act that you should only have one car per person. Well, it's such an, an interesting point you raise, and I think my, my hope um, for my book is that it helps people to really think critically about all issues, to really question why they think the way they do, why they feel the way they do, why they act the way they do, and reflect critically on their own beliefs and behaviors. Well, Melanie Joy, author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism, I thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And I'd like to ask you about an aha or eureka moment that uh, you've experienced that has changed your life. You know, I like to sometimes share my story and and talk about how I came to do the work that I'm doing today. Um, And and there was that aha moment. Um, I I did grow up with a dog who I loved like a family member, and I grew up as somebody who really genuinely loved animals. And um, I knew that I wanted to make the world a better place for animals um, in my life. But I also grew up eating animals, often multiple times a day, and I never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog and eat my hamburger and not recognize this inconsistency in my attitudes and behaviors toward animals. And so I lived with this knowing without knowing. Um, On one level, I was aware that someone had to die for my plate whenever I ate meat. And on another level, I, I wasn't ready to take in this information. I just preferred not to know. And um, at one point in my life, after I had been exposed to information about the reality of meat production, um, I know it was a number of times, I suddenly made the connection. And I'm saying suddenly, but I think the process that led up to this making the connection for me was, was fairly slow. I was ready to make the connection, and I made the connection between the meat and the animal that it came from. I closed that gap in my consciousness, and I had a paradigm shift. I saw the same thing differently. I started to see the world through a very different set of eyes. It was very personally liberating for me. Um, And it was also challenging for me. And it was what inspired me to do the work that I've done to help other people become aware. And can you tell us what you would like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I think that I'll be spending um, a long time helping the concept of carnism to become integrated into the mainstream, because I think when we recognize that eating animals is not simply a matter of personal ethics, but the inevitable end result of a deeply entrenched invisible belief system, this will dramatically change the way that we think and talk about the issue. And finally, is there a book that you would recommend to our listeners? The Food Revolution by John Robbins. The 10th anniversary edition um, was recently released, and this is just a fantastic book full of really important information, and um, it's been a very inspiring book for me. Melanie Joy, author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Melanie Joy, Ph.D., is the author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, an introduction to carnism, the belief system that enables us to eat some animals and not others. Take a look at her website, 
carnism, C-A-R-N-I-S-M dot com. The book that she recommends is The Food Revolution, How Your Diet Can Save Your Life and Our World by John Robbins. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is post office box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.